This episode of the Coin World Podcast is sponsored by Amos Advantage. Looking to see your collection in greater detail? Check out the wide selection of Carson magnifying products and microscopes available at amosadvantage.com. Count on Carson to bring you truly innovative, high-quality optics at extraordinary value. And count on Amos Advantage for all your coin collecting supply needs. Visit amosadvantage.com to explore our inventory. Would you like to sponsor the Coin World Podcast? If so, contact your Coin World sales representative or email Brian Hertel at B-H-E-R-T-E-L at AmosMedia.com. The email is in the show notes as well. Affordable rates and multi-episode discounts are available. Contact us today to sponsor the Coin World Podcast. Welcome to the Coin World Podcast with your host, Jeff Stark. As I've said from day one of this show, this is a big tent hobby. There's a lot of room for folks. And Larry Jewett. And learning has been such a tremendous amount of this journey. The Coin World Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Coin World Podcast. We're so glad you could join us here in the month of August. I'm Larry Jewett. Unfortunately, my colleague Jeff Stark is unavailable for today's show. Jeff will be a part of our interview coming up a little bit later on with Frank L. Holt, the author of a book called When Money Talks. And that's a really interesting subject. Trust me about that one. But uh, we're going to do a little talking right now leading up to that interview as we get set for this weekly episode of the Coin World Podcast. Brought to you by Amos Advantage. Uh, We appreciate Amos Advantage continuing their support of our efforts here as we try to bring you the most informative and the most educational and the sometimes even the most controversial type subjects that we can get our hands on as we continue to augment the production of our weekly publication, Coin World, and maintain our site at coinworld.com. You know, it's been pretty busy here lately in preparation for the upcoming ANA World's Fair of Money to be held uh, next week, as a matter of fact. We'll be there uh, in Rosemont, Illinois, taking part in that activity. And just about everybody who's everybody is going to be there. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that coming up a little bit later on here. But I want to start off the show and get it taken care of now because really proud of the email that we got recently here from our friend Brian Clark. Brian is the founder and one of the moderators of the Coin Collecting for the New Guy Facebook site that we found out about a few weeks back and uh, made mention of it a few times, and they are big supporters of the Coin World podcast. And well, congratulations are in order because that club has reached a membership of about a thousand folks right now, maybe even more by the time we get this out there. But I know I joined the group uh, some time back. It's been interesting to see some of the questions that the individuals have. And even more impressive is the fact that everybody seems to be stepping up to help somebody who has a question. It seems like everybody is uh, having the right spirit about this. Nobody, uh, you don't see any flame wars or anything like that going on with this great group here. So if you happen to be one of those who uh, is uh, joining this hobby, this great numismatic world for the first time, I highly recommend you check out Facebook and uh, give Brian a shout out on Coin Collecting for the New Guy as, uh, again, those guys doing a great job in helping folks get a little better understanding. There's a lot of confusion out there, a lot of misinformation out there, and the whole idea about uh, success in this is by staying informed of the right information and not getting yourself on the wrong end of it. And it's groups like Brian's group that are helping to take care of that and make things happen for that. Taking a look at what's uh, currently happening in the world of Coin World, 
We just uh, wrapped up an issue, and uh, one of the big stories uh, concerns an upcoming auction that's going to be happening, and it's going to be conducted by the U.S. Mint because they have 500 lots that are going to be sold, and these lots are going to consist of American eagles that were personally struck by Mint Director David J. Ryder. That's something kind of unusual right there. It's going to have a certificate of authenticity to it. Uh, the coins themselves uh, certainly not going to look any different than any other of the American eagles that they have, but with the reverse of 86 and the reverse of 2021 and just a nice little uh, conversation piece, if you will. We don't have any more details about that. Hopefully in an upcoming issue of Coin World or on the website, we'll have some more information that can go along with that if you're interested in getting involved with that. Also, uh, from the world of the Mint, the American Liberty coin is going to be coming out on the 19th of August. And now it's going to be really interesting to take a look at this coin. If you get a chance, check it out on the website at coinworld.com. Or if the uh, latest edition's in your mailbox, make sure you check that out as well. Or you can always get the digital edition and get that uh, directly to your computer so you have that Saturday morning first thing. But anyway, the American Liberty coin is going to be featuring a little bit of an unusual obverse this time. Don't want to give up the surprise. It's just worth taking a look at and going, huh, that's interesting. Some will love it. Some will hate it. That's just the way it goes sometimes. I personally think it's pretty cool. But then again, you know, you never know. One other item of interest, and that was in our uh, paper money section, Art Friedberg taking care of this one to appreciate all the work that he does each and every issue, keeping us up to date on the paper money situation. And that's mostly from around the world, because that's where the uh, paper money things are happening all around the country here, uh, all around the world, actually, uh, in other countries. This country, in this case, was Fiji. Now, Fiji, of course, uh, like many of the nations of the world, heavily involved in the Olympics that are starting to wind down here. But Fiji, back in 2016, won their first gold medal in the sport of rugby. And in the process, because it's a seven-man team, they put out a $7 bill, kind of an unusual denomination. And uh, it's kind of, that was back in 2016. Well, now it kind of got back into the news as the Fiji team went on to uh, go on to the Olympics. And some folks were keeping them as good luck charms. And there was hope that if they get the gold medal, they may even reissue it for the uh, 2021 year. So if you've been keeping track of things, you already know the answer to this one, but it was kind of interesting that it was a good luck charm and uh, that full story again on coinworld.com. So check that out. And of course, the uh, latest issue will be coming out for this weekend. We're working on that right now, getting that taken care of. So we'll have more up-to-date news regarding the world of CoinWorld because it is a global publication, as a matter of fact. CoinWorld, of course, celebrated its 60th anniversary back in uh, 1960, the beginning of it. So last year, we celebrated the 60th anniversary. But sometimes we like to go back and take a look back in time. And Jeff uh, normally handles this. And right now, I'm going to step up and try to do as good a job as he does as we take a look back in numismatic history, uh, thanks to the information that was provided in uh, past issues of CoinWorld. But we're focusing on the week of August 2nd, this being the week, first week of August right here. And there are several significant events that happened in numismatic history. One of them happened on August 3rd, which yesterday, and that happened back in 1835, as we go all the way back there, because that was the day that the federal government made the purchase of the site that became the Dahlonega Mint. That back in 1835, of course, with the discovery of gold in the eastern United States and a place to make the coins and have folks take their uh, gold to in order to have them minted into coins needed 
to do that at Dahlonega. So the federal government spent $1,050 and bought what became the site of the Dahlonega Mint. So if you're ever up in North Georgia, you may want to visit by the historic marker there and uh, some of the uh, some of the attributes that uh, remember those days gone by when Dahlonega was one of our branch mints. Another event on the calendar was August 5th, and this was in 1999, a little bit sooner. And it goes uh, back a little bit to the uh, podcast we had a little earlier, and that was with uh, Richard Jurek concerning the space-flown currency that we were talking about back then. On this uh, August 5th, 1999, the U.S. Mint, uh, they had a dinner, and there was a dinner that was attended by members of Congress. It was a nice affair. And at that dinner, the U.S. Mint had a very special display because they displayed a single .9999 fine gold Sacagawea dollar. And what was significant about that? Well, it went to space. So it was a space-flown piece of uh, a coin and that members of Congress had a chance to see close up. I'd love to know where that is right about now. It's probably tucked away in a museum. If not on display, then probably tucked away into the archives somewhere. And one other event that occurred in the history uh, for you numismatics that uh, like these history ideas, and history so very important for all of us on the currency and on the coins, it was August 6th of 1928 that the Bureau of Engraving and Printing started the printing of the small-size U.S. paper money notes. Yes, indeed. That was a definitely a transitional occurrence that happened. It happened in the month of August, and it happened almost 100 years ago. 93 years ago is when the printing of the small-size U.S. paper money began. So history is so very important to us, as uh, we all know and love the history that's displayed on everything. And it's, uh, history is uh, pretty important because of the connection that it has well beyond our revolutionary times of the 1700s on back into the histories of the ancient times here. And that's going to be the subject that's going to be addressed by our guest today, Frank L. Holt. Frank L. Holt is the author of a new book called When Money Talks, A History of Coins and Numismatics. And it's a very interesting read. This is not his first endeavor with respect to uh, numismatics and history. He's a history professor at the University of Houston, who has uh, done extensive research, and you just—I'm not going to read the book to you, obviously, but you, you got to get to the line that he tells us right here. That I did not get into history for the money; I went into money for the history. Is what he says in the preface right there, and it uh, that really sets the stage for this great book that gives you a lot of information about historical uh, accommodations and how uh, the different findings and the different hordes play into the roles even here today. And uh, it's a very intriguing read, as uh, you can uh, get that at book. It's called Frank L. Holt, When Money Talks, A History of Coins and Numismatics. It's from Oxford Press. And so we're going to let Frank tell you all about that right now as uh, we welcome onto the podcast both Jeff Stark and Frank L. Holt, the author of When Money Talks. Welcome into the Coin World Podcast, as we're delighted today to have Frank L. Holt. Frank Holt is the author of a book called When Money Talks, A History of Coins and Numismatics. Frank, welcome in. Thank you very much. I got to say, I want to go all NPR on you because, I mean, this is important. You received the National Endowment for the Humanities for a Public Scholar Program grant to write this book, and it's just 
uh, now hitting the bookshelves, I think. I love the line in the preface, I did not go into history for the money, I went into money for the history. You know, collectors know this, you know, at a deep level, but maybe the layperson doesn't know. Coins are really important. Why is that the case and what can we learn through coins? Coins are one of the most significant historical sources that we can uh, possibly study. And it's a source that's often overlooked, particularly by modern historians. We ancient historians rely upon it a, a great deal because it is uh, from the time that coins first were introduced in the uh, late 7th century BC, the only continuous source that we have that's uninterrupted, in other words, and it's uh, information about the development of Greek and Roman civilization, for example. And as a result of that, you know, the permanence of coins, the durability of coins, the extent to which ancient people could compact so much information onto a coin, that's something we moderns have often lost sight of. They're the earliest form of digital uh, encoding of information in a transportable and transferable way. And so these tiny bits of information technology provide information about almost every aspect you can imagine about ancient societies. And in fact, a lot of my work has been about the Greek settlements out in what is today Afghanistan. And because so many other sources that once existed for that history have now been lost, coins are our only source for great stretches of that history. I've reconstructed entire civilization of the Greek experience out in the East based almost entirely upon coins alone. So we can't underestimate the value of coinage. They are a keystone for almost all of our knowledge, particularly for the ancient world. And but one of the things that it strikes me as kind of unusual here, because you refer to these as pieces of information technology, and yet you are forced to reconstruct time without the benefit of a thing that we take for granted on coins these days, and that's the date. Exactly. It is a little bit more challenging in that respect, although dates for future uh, generations of archaeologists and historians are going to be a problem. Because when they see a date like uh, 2002 next to a portrait of, let's say, Abraham Lincoln, what sort of chronological mistakes are they going to make when they associate that individual with that particular date? So it's a two-edged sword or two sides of the same coin, if you will. But for ancient coins, exactly, some ancient coins are dated on the coins themselves. Some uh, regal coins issued by the kings of, let's say, the Hellenistic period after Alexander the Great will give their regnal year in a Greek alphabetic number. No Arabic numbers yet, but Greek alphabetic numbers. And so it might say year seven or year eight. And we can therefore set the coins in a chronology that way. Roman coins would be dated by the string of titles attached to, let's say, an emperor's name, and what year of his tribunician power was this coin minted, and so forth. And so we can work out those chronologies and have done so very well. Now, there are some cases, for example, in my field of study in ancient Afghanistan, where we can only work in a general span of time estimate that this king reigned from about this time to about that time with no clear chronological marker 
on the coin. But we can work around that. And particularly when we use archaeological context, we can often then, you know, when you find coins in a hoard, some of the coins that are datable in that hoard will help us to date other coins that mm -hmm. uh, up until that point we had no chronological indication of. You touched upon something that I uh, I wanted to uh, stress, and, and so I'm glad you did. You know, the, the contextual clues are often so important because you can find, you know, you, you, you can see a coin with a certain amount of wear, say, in a hoard circulating or found alongside other coins without wear that are maybe newer, and it gives you little clues to, well, gosh, maybe the, these coins were still in use 100, 200 years later, whatever the case may be, or we find hordes scattered all over, and here's a coin that traveled you know, in modern times hundreds of miles from the mint, and this thus speaks to the vastness of trade and, you know, the dispersing of populations. Absolutely. I can give you a clear example that uh, sort of works between numismatics and archaeology. There was an important ancient Greek city called Aichanum out in the east that was excavated in the 1970s by French archaeologists. And it's a fascinating city. It's a Greek city in an entirely non-Greek environment, that is what is now northern Afghanistan. In fact, it was the king of Afghanistan who discovered the archaeological site back in 1961. And in any case, this city was abandoned suddenly by the Greeks. I mean, archaeologically, the treasury still has things of value stockpiled in it. The Greeks packed up and they left. And the only way that we can tell when that happened, that important event, is by the coin evidence from that site. Because when we look at the coins found, we find coins all the way down to a particular king by the name of Eucratides. And we know from other hordes that were buried a little bit later that Eucratides' son issued lots of coins. And because we don't find any of those coins of Eucratides' son at this site, we know with certainty that the site was abandoned during the reign of that king, Eucratides. And so, yeah, you have to contextualize coins uh, constantly. And that's the significance of, you know, safeguarding the evidence that we can derive from archaeology and from hoards, hoping that they don't get despoiled before we can find those kinds of contextual links that help us to reconstruct ancient history. It seems there's always been a monetary uh, or pecuniary component to coins, it, both, I mean, you know, that's a tautology, obviously, but, you know, as, as long as coins have been made and coin hoards have been left to be discovered, they've been subject to the uh, avaricious whims of, of those perhaps who would discover them. Uh, how do you rectify the tension, you know, the debate today in modern times, you know, between archaeologists and collectors, and can they cohabitate a, a shared space of, of respect and appreciation while serving to tell those stories? You know, it, it's a collection, in my mind, of snapshots. Each hoard, each deposit is a snapshot, and you need a bunch of them to put the movie together. How do we bridge the gap there? 
I include a chapter in the book that is a, mm-hmm. a, a dialogue that takes place in a classroom, a fictitious college classroom with a fictitious instructor and students who invites a coin collector as a guest to show off his collection of coins to these students who are taking an academic course on numismatics. And I use that chapter uh, as an opportunity to weigh in on this ongoing debate between those, um, particularly the archaeological camp, who say coins should not be privately owned, at least not historically significant coins should not be privately owned, and the interests of the private collector, who in many cases take much better care of coins than do academics uh, and historians and archaeologists and others. And I hope that that chapter really brings out both sides. Now, it doesn't resolve the debate, and I don't know that I'll ever change any minds, but I hope that that debate will open some people's minds. And at the close of that chapter, this fictitious numismatic uh, professor suggests that one solution to this problem would be not to look at numismatics in an archaeological model. Because if you do, then the archaeologists will insist that amateurs can't write um, papers to be published in academic journals. Private collectors should not own important coins and so forth. And I think that's going a bit far uh, in the debate. But instead of that archaeological model or that archaeological insistence, that we look at sort of a paleontological model, a curatorial model. So that uh, numismatists uh, like myself would work more in the vein of uh, modern day scientists who work on the study of ancient dinosaurs, who depend upon private collectors and private collections uh, in order to find information, who rely upon the cooperation of a kind of business side of paleontology to help develop the information available for the academic side of things. So I think there are... Yeah. Yes. Chapter nine yeah, chapter is my nine. favorite chapter. That's my favorite is it really? chapter. Mm-hmm. Yes, it I, is. I'm glad. I, I had a hard time getting that into um, the book at some points because, you know, it, it breaks the pattern of a clear sort of uh, expository history of coins and numismatics by throwing in a chapter that, you know, has dialogue and things of that type. It was the most fun chapter to write. I will tell you that. Uh, I enjoyed it very much. And I, I like to think that in the future, in classrooms and at uh, club meetings, coin collector club meetings, that that chapter might, again, sort of stimulate a conversation about these two sides. After all, again, as my book points out, there was a time in the 19th century when you couldn't tell an archaeologist from a numismatist. They were the same person, the same animal. They had the same interests. They mm-hmm. had the same methodologies. Many of the famous early archaeologists began their careers as coin collectors. Whereas nowadays, as we go into the 21st century, in many cases, archaeologists insist that coins in private collections should not be uh, involved in our academic debates, that this is despoiling the the evidence, it's corrupting the hordes and that kind of thing. We've got to find a way to get past the extreme wings of both camps and create a kind of citizen uh, scientist model where collectors and academics, and by academics I mean also historians and archaeologists, can work more closely together in this. Now, having said that, 
as we said earlier, the worst thing that can happen for all of us is for someone to dig up a hoard, particularly in a war zone like Syria or Afghanistan, and that hoard spill out into the uh, coin market and gets dispersed and picked over and reduced to a position in which we can never understand its original composition, it therefore loses all of its historical context and much of its historical value. And even the worst cases, for example, are when museums in territories that are now involved in war or civil war, when those museums are looted. I helped try to track down a large number of coins from the museum in Kabul that spilled onto the international market and were being auctioned off. Now, normally the, the major auction houses uh, are very smart. They're, they're great numismatists. They knew these coins came from a museum collection, and they therefore refused to, to sell them. Whereas, unfortunately, as we mentioned uh, earlier on, technology is a, uh, is a dangerous thing. Things like uh, electronic auctions allow coins that have been taken from museums to be sold and hardly traced at all. And I, I have tried to help in several cases. You know, I, I would write to people bidding on a coin on a public auction when I knew that coin was stolen from an archaeological museum and, and would tell the person. And, and in most cases, I will have to say, that coin collector, that coin dealer said, oh, I didn't know this. I'm glad you told me I won't involve myself in this auction. Unfortunately, the coin will be sold to somebody. But the more people who are informed, the more people who are aware of the significance of maintaining you know, a record of where a coin came from and whose hands it has passed, the better off I think we all will be, collectors and scholars alike. Yeah. And in many ways, you talk about that in the beginning, about how the coins have a voice and how they tell a story here. But going back to chapter nine, you know, one of the things about every chapter of this book that really got my attention right off the bat is the little quotes that you include at the beginning of each chapter. During the course of that chapter, also the fact that the characters were from different backgrounds, the marine biologists, the professor, the students who had different majors, that type of thing. It allows us to kind of get an idea that the people looking at numismatic products or archaeology or that type of thing are different people. And to have this particular quote in the beginning of a book for popular culture was my minor in college, but a pop right. culture, yeah, a song yeah. by the OJs is appearing on a book <laughs> like this. And it's like, wait a minute. Okay. But that allows you to get the, the global perspective of what this money is all about. And we'll get into a little later, some of the earlier quotes here that, that I mentioned that, that really impacted me. Just the Portland penny is one that really, really struck my fancy on that one. But uh, just the idea that you've got a, a little something here that everybody can relate to, in my opinion. Well, yeah, I use uh, modern sitcoms and I compare modern sitcoms like Big Bang Theory, for example, or Modern Family to the ancient plays written by Aristophanes. They're telling us the same thing, just in a different language. You know, I, I quote uh, a Beatles song uh, about the tax man. Uh, I wanted this book because part of the interest that the NEH had in my project was that I would try to relate an academic uh, pursuit, an academic discipline to a much broader public, that I would you know, try to make it understandable, uh, to make it appreciated by people who may never have thought 
about numismatics before, never thought about coins as, as historically or culturally significant before. So I thought part of my mandate was, again, to involve all people and speak to all people and to draw in popular culture, to draw in, you know, highbrow classical culture uh, wherever I could, to include, like you say, all those different majors and to try, therefore, to you know, relate this. I use uh, an episode from the TV show MASH, you know, where, <laughs> if you know the show, where Hawkeye <laughs> Pierce is trying to get his boot fixed. I use that to explain uh, exactly what Aristotle was saying in the fourth century BC. I really enjoyed that challenge, and, and I thought that it was a responsibility I had as an academic, as a scholar, to relate to as many people as I could. And, you know, because I don't myself come from an academic background, I don't come from a well-to-do background. I'm, a, I'm the most unlikeliest of scholars and especially numismatists, giving my poor eyesight and things of that type. But because I've had that kind of varied background, it, it makes it easier, I think, for me to speak to everyone. And so I hope there's something in this book for everyone. I think my my uh, academic colleagues around the world will, will read things in there that they'd never heard of or thought of before. But I also hope that uh, your readers and uh, your listeners will also say, hey, there's something in this book uh, for me. I, I, you know, I'd like to say it's a, it's a perfect gift to give to everyone who has an interest in coins, I hope. Yeah. And I think you missed a great chance to make a joke about, I love this reference in the area where you're talking about Pompeii and the, the nearly 33,000 coins recovered from from there, um, that yes. this, mosa- this mosaic outside, and I'm, I'm sure I'm going to pronounce it wrong, uh, the house of Publius uh, Vedius Syracuse. Um, Syracuse, yes. Trans- Syracuse that basically translates to hail money. Uh, you know, that's, yes. that's, that's, that's a, like the modern day version of bling or a grill wearing a grill on your teeth, <laughs> like a rapper. Exactly. So. <laughs> Wale lucrum. Um, yeah. And, and, and it, for me, I often see that and I think of a sign in front of a, a little shop uh, nearby, your money is welcome here. <laughs> you know, it's, it's that kind of thing yeah. is the Pompeians were quite fond, uh, as all ancient people were, they were quite fond of, of their money. So that's, yeah, that's interesting. And we know that some ancient uh, peoples collected coins, even Roman emperors like Augustus were interested enough in coins that they would, they would make collections of their own. Well, I have often heard, uh, growing up and all through my life, the phrase, put your money where your mouth is. And it wasn't <laughs> until I read your book that it dawned on me that when you're walking around in a toga, you don't have pockets. And so yeah. the idea is that these individuals were tra- they were conducting their business and their commerce, and the only place they could keep their money was in their mouth, and they were using that. And uh, there was even a story in there where because of the changing values that the guy couldn't even buy what he intended to buy based on the value of the money that he had in his mouth. And it's just like, you know, the visual image I had of that was, huh, okay, well, there you go. <laughs> you know, I learned, yeah, I learned plenty from uh, just, you know, a lot of individual activities here, but I especially learned a lot by just looking at the glossary as well. There's a lot of uh, great definitions of things that I may not have known about from the ancient cultures that are all contained right here in those pages. 
Well, I'm very pleased to hear that. Uh, I, I more or less insisted that we needed a glossary, I thought, uh, in the book to make it as useful as it possibly could be to as many different uh, readers as there might be. So one thing, you know, to tie it back to Pompeii, you said that the study of money is not just an academic exercise about old battles and erupting volcanoes. Later, you say most of us today fear outbreaks of contagious diseases far more than we worry about volcanic eruptions or tribal insurrections. Cognitive numismatists in the future may learn from money not only when some disaster befell us, but how contagion-bearing cash helped spread it. How apropos for the times in which we live where, you know, I was looking at um, the ANA in Chicago, and I'm, I'm looking at a restaurant that I want to make reservations for, and on their website, big as plain as day, you know, during this pandemic, we're not accepting cash. You have to pay with credit card. And, and I know from the preface, which was written apparently in May 2020, uh, you know, this, yes. this book straddles these weird times in which we're in. When did this all start in the solid or concrete sense? Because obviously it's a life's work encompassed in, you know, 300 pages or whatever. All right. When did which start? My interest in coins, the, the this work, or the interest in coins and pandemic? This work particularly. I mean, you you received the um, oh, okay. the scholarship yes. and and all that. And well, as I said, when I grew up, uh, I I certainly wasn't a, a numismatist or a coin collector. Um, I had poor eyesight, and um, you know, my family never had disposable income for collecting bottle caps, much less uh, interesting coins. Um, But I had this fascination with history and particularly early history. And so when I went to college and then went to graduate school uh, at the University of Virginia, I became interested in what happened to, uh, again, Greek soldiers of Alexander who were left behind in what is now Afghanistan. What happened to them? And the, there are faint glimpses of them in, in things like um, Kipling's work, The Man Who Would Be King, for example, or Boccaccio or Chaucer mentioned that, you know, and still today, there are people who claim to be descendants of Alexander's soldiers who live in places like Kashmir. And so I was interested in that. And so, you know, one of the first graduate school research papers I did is I told my professor, I, I want to study what happened out in this extreme eastern part of the Greek world. And my professor, Harry James Dell, told me, well, you know, that's fine, Frank, but you're going to have to study coins if you're going to do that, because coins are essentially our our only evidence for uh, what happened out there. You know, and, and as it turns out, yeah, we know the names of some 36 kings and queens who ruled out there who are known only from coins, not from any other ancient source. And so I said, okay, um, coins sound interesting. And uh, I got serious about it. I I went to the American Numismatic Society. Uh, They have a graduate seminar uh, every summer. In 1980, I Mm -hmm. went and studied coins and that went well. I published an article in the Revue Numismatique, the premier journal in in France on coins about... um, uh, coins in the in the ancient East. It just grew from that. And over the years, as I've not only been researching and writing about coins, but more and more these days able to teach, you know, I, I now have a, a regular course in the college catalog on, on coins that I teach. And it's the teaching that really inspired me to 
to write this book because I developed all sorts of my own ideas. You mentioned cognitive numismatics a while ago. I, I, I sort of invented that as a way of exploring coins and explaining coins to students. And so I thought, you know, I'm getting on in years now and uh, I have this body of experience and knowledge about coins that I don't want it to go away just because, you know, one day I'll retire and not be able to teach. I wanted to put it down um, in as elegant a form as I could as a book. I wanted it to be widely read. And so you know, I took this chance of applying to the uh, National Endowment for, for the Humanities. They saw the merits of a book for the general public on coins, and uh, that funded a year off for me to do a great deal of the research and um, and some of the writing. So it's been a it's been a lifetime for me uh, of coins. I missed out in, in my youth. I admire so many famous numismatists, and most of them started as, as children. And I didn't have that opportunity and sometimes wish that I had, but I've certainly made the most of coins ever since I discovered what they are and what they could tell us from an historical point of view. So, yeah, I didn't get into uh, history for the money, but I certainly got into money for the history because there's a lot of history in uh, whatever we carry around in our pockets and purses every day. What do you find as far as when you are conducting your current class regarding uh, the coins? What do you find as far as the student's interest? Is it just to fulfill a major or are they seriously interested in the subject matter here? Now that we're in this uh, trend toward the cashless society and cryptocurrency, how do the uh, younger generation view a historic look at coins? For the most part, my students, um, there may be one student in a class who is a coin collector or knows a coin collector, you know, someone whose grandfather or father collected coins, something like that. Um, most of them then don't come to the class because they want more background and, and a pastime or hobby or an academic interest that they already had. They see the course description. Fortunately, I have a lot of popular classes, and many students follow me from those classes into the numismatics class. But really, it's it's not me. It's the coins that sell themselves as, as a matter of interest. Again, um, and you'll know this from having read the book, one of the first things I do uh, when I teach a, a course on coins is as I walk in with a jar full of the uh, junk change from my house, uh, you know, quarters, nickels, dimes that accumulate over time, too heavy to carry around every day. So you, you, you put them in a pile in a jar and I take it in, set it on the, on the table, introduce myself and tell students, all right, the, the first thing we're going to find out from you is, is how you look at coins. So I want to know two things about this. Why are all these coins in the jar and why are all of them round? And it's the most amazing process to sit there and listen to them as they bounce ideas off each other about two very simple questions. And I remind them, this is stuff. These coins are things that you've handled all your life. There's not a single coin in here that you haven't seen before, haven't held before. It's not like I'm throwing a, a jar of, you know, uh, Athenian tetradrams in front of you. That <laughs> might be a little strange to you. These are coins that you know or should know. And why can't you tell me these two basic facts? And they come up with all sorts of wild theories. And, and I work some of that into, uh, into the book uh, in that chapter on coins and object agency and can coins think and act? And when I give them that, that explanation about how the coins themselves 
have decided to be round, how the coins themselves have decided they want to be in that jar. Well, that sort of blows their mind. And and I'll never forget the first time I did this, this undergraduate coming up to me later and saying, Dr. Holt, I will never look at a coin the same way again. I just, I can't believe how you can look at coins this way. And so that's, you know, that's the kind of, uh, you know, once the students get in, they become very excited. And there's so many different ways that you can teach about coins. They become fascinated by the methodology, by the terminology and things of that type. I've had students and sometimes I'll have them set up an exhibit of coins in the library, for example, and to prepare a catalog of that exhibit. I have them do interviews of friends or family members about uh, coins and what they think about coins. They do research on the superstitions surrounding coins that most of us seem to have uh, in modern times that carry over from ancient times. So because it's such a common, you know, utilitarian object that we all think we know, it's fascinating that right off the bat students realize they really didn't know anything about coins and not really much about money either, not understanding the difference between coin and currency, for example, or what does cash really mean and where does the word come from? I sometimes give them a blank sheet of paper and say, all right, without looking, draw a U.S. dime and everything on it. And there's never once in my history of teaching for nearly 40 years that a student could draw a dime. And yet every one of them had held a dime, owned a dime, spent a dime, but they'd never really looked at a dime. They put all sorts of crazy presidents on the dime and things of that type. So it's a mind, it's not just a mind opening experience. In some cases, it's a mind blowing experience because there's so much that coins have to teach us. And so I, I love that class. It's, it's a fascinating class to teach. Absolutely. Uh, and this just speaks to the, you know, you know, you take something for granted, you take something at face value. And there's a line in there, I think, is a, a perfect place to end, uh, even though it's not at the, the end of the book. The future of numismatics is destined to be as strange to us as a Bitcoin would be to Aristotle. And it, you know, I think that just that encapsulates nicely the how you're forcing people to reconsider these objects that seem so familiar and and so intangible and and just part of our life and we just take them for granted we just uh, you know even as collectors i mean i i as you said that i go I don't know that I could do that. And I, you know, this is my job. This is my life, my passion to know about coins. But, you know, for one thing, I write about world coins. I'm not dealing with U.S., but, you know, I'm using coins almost every day. And, uh, you know, it's just a, you don't take a second look at it. And, and yet it's the most successful technology ever. I mean, think about this. If you could take a a Greek off the streets of Athens in the 5th century BC and and put him in a modern city like like Houston here or New York, that Greek would be terrified by almost everything he or she saw. Cars, planes, uh, computers, watches. But the the one thing that Greek... (laughs) Tall buildings. (laughs) But the one thing that Greek might understand would be a coin they would see, oh, that's a technology that I'm familiar with. 
We helped develop it, you know, in ancient Greece. And it's amazing that you're still using that same technology today. And I firmly believe that Bitcoin isn't going to change that one bit, uh, that, that, that coins are going to are here to stay. Um, and certainly, even if the day comes when we stop minting and using coins, there's still going to be numismatists. There's still going to be collectors and there's still going to be scholars who rely upon those coins to cover all the historical events from uh, 2,600 years ago down to the present day. So, yeah, uh, coins are, um, are a fascination. They are a technology, and it's hard to think of a technology that has lasted this long. I put coins there with the invention of art and the invention of writing. The invention of art, the invention of writing, the invention of coins. I think those are perhaps the three big transformative points in human history. And there you have the tripod of our existence right there. So once again, the the book is called When Money Talks. It's a history of coins and numismatics by Oxford Press, Oxford University Press. Frank L. Holt, the author. And Frank, we appreciated the time that you spent with us here today and enlightening us. And uh, certainly we hope that our listeners follow through and uh, get the enlightenment that we've been able to have just by enjoying your book. So thank you for your time today. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed today's guest, uh, Frank L. Holt, with his book, When Money Talks, A History of Coins and Numismatics. We certainly have enjoyed reading it and uh, know that you would, too, and can add that to your numismatic library. We're getting set for next week. Uh, We'll be at the A&A's World Fair of Money. A lot of things going on at the World's Fair of Money. Uh, Many of the uh, Money Talks lectures, uh, some some of the Sunman Lecture Series going to be happening. Some of these events are going to be on the website for the ANA at money.org if you're not able to actually attend the show in person, which we're so thankful to be able to uh, get back out to these shows. But if you can't make it to Rosemont, Illinois, of course, you can check out money.org and find out some of the things that are going to be happening there. We'll have a complete wrap-up of the ANA's World's Fair of Money from Rosemont. That'll be coming up in a future issue of the Coin World and also onto our website, coinworld.com. Not to mention how many folks we can cajole while we're there in Rosemont to get them to appear on the show a little bit later on. So we hope that you've enjoyed today's presentation. Once again, Jeff Stark will be back with us next week. I'm going to make sure of that. Maybe I'll take a week off. We'll never know. But we thank you for listening to the Coin World Podcast. Please send in your ideas and recommendations that you might have. And also, thanks to Amos Advantage for letting us be a part of having fun to help you with your numismatic journey. In the meantime, happy collecting. Thank you for listening to the Coin World Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe and we'll see you next week. Would you like to sponsor the Coin World Podcast? If so, contact your Coin World sales representative or email Brian Hertel at B H E R T E L at AmosMedia.com. The email is in the show notes as well. Affordable rates and multi episode discounts are available. Contact us today to sponsor the Coin World Podcast.